0: For our sermon now today, uh, we have a little bit of a departure from the, I guess, the track we've been walking on. If you've been with us, uh, we are in a series called Preparing the Way, and we're looking at uh, the the time of preparation before the official start of the ministry of Jesus. And so we've been in Luke three and four. We haven't got to Luke four yet. Uh, But there's a text that I've been kind of saving, that I've been wanting to come back to, and one that I think fits in with our general theme, uh, but it's in Luke 2. So we're going to just slightly step backwards to Luke 2, verses 41 to 52. And the reason I thought this would be a great time to do it is that there there are within these uh, words some themes that have to do with family, have to do even with motherhood, and yet it also fits within the larger theme of a of a time of preparation for Jesus. Because what we're looking at is the only window we have into the adolescent life of Jesus. We're going to see the the scene when he's 12 years old and goes to the temple and gets kind of left behind. And within this uh, really fascinating account, we gain a lot of wisdom. We gain some insight into the nature of a faithful godly family, for one thing. We also gain insight into what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And finally, we see uh, for us what it means for us to be children of God, submissive children of God by faith. And so we're going to look at all these things found here within the text. And so I'd invite you to look to uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 41. If you have your Bible, you can read right through, or I'm going to read it, and then we'll have some verses on the screen as we work our way through the text. So here's God's word to us this morning. Now his parents, that's Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's God's word to us this morning. Uh, Let's pause one more for a moment of prayer, uh, just about this text. God, we're thankful for your word. I pray, God, as we look to it, that you would uh, give us open minds, open hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words I speak would be in accordance with your truth, in spite of my own sin. Thank you, Lord, for this time we have here. Would you bless us in the teaching of your word? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to work through the text in three parts, three sort of big ideas that uh, I see in here. First, we're going to see a faithful family. Secondly, a special son. And thirdly, a submissive child. So to begin with, a faithful family. Uh, It's an interesting window we have, really the only one, biblically, into the family life of Jesus. And what we see here is that he had a, a faithful, godly family. If you look at verses 41 and 42... Uh, we find this, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So Passover was a big, day, a big deal in that day. Uh, it was really the highlight of the year in the Jewish calendar. Even the most non-committal Jew would find their way to Jerusalem to in some way celebrate the Passover, which was a remembrance of what God had done for his people at the time of the Exodus. They were remembering and celebrating that they had been saved from slavery to Egypt. And in that, they're really celebrating the character of God. Uh, The men of Israel were commanded back in Exodus that at least the men should come to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast of Passover. And custom dictated that uh, they were to remain at least two days, kind of for the core of the celebration. But what we find here is that it's not just Joseph that comes to Jerusalem, but it's the whole family. Mary and Joseph and the kids, they come with part of a group, probably from Nazareth, and they make it a highlight of their, of their year. Uh, the city itself for this, would have been just a massive celebration. Uh, upwards of 200,000 people would have flooded into the city. They would have been sleeping all over the place, singing psalms. It would have been just a really exciting highlight for their year. And for Jesus, this year was especially special. So he was 12 years old. Next year, he would become uh, what they would call a son of the commandment. It would be a transition year from boyhood to adulthood. And so that meant that the year before, the rabbis would command all the fathers, take your sons and go and teach them what it, what it means to celebrate the Passover uh, truly and, and all the details of it so that Jesus would be equipped to lead his own family, to go to the temple, prepare the sacrifice. So this was a, this was a big year for Jesus. Uh, One thing, just before we get into the rest of the text, though, you'll notice here that the implication is that Jesus had to learn some stuff, which is a little bit interesting to think about, because we're told in the Bible that Jesus is God. And so here we have, though, a time when Jesus is developing. In fact, in our text, we see examples where he's he's learning and growing. And you might have some questions about that, and, and the answer is, in part, there's mystery in the Incarnation that he is both fully God and fully man. But in the practical living of it, Jesus was a real human being. And it's not that he stopped being God, but that he, he didn't access all of his powers of omnipotence and omniscience. And so as a child, Jesus really did have to grow. He wasn't just putting on kind of a window dressing or a costume of humanity. As a toddler, he really had to learn to walk. And as a seven-year-old, he didn't, he didn't know advanced mathematics. He had to be taught Algebra, using an an abacus, whatever they would use back then. He would learn it. And here, in terms of how he would lead his family, his father Joseph, his earthly father, would teach him how to celebrate the the Passover. Now, the one difference is that Jesus, uh, though he was growing and developing as any human being would, uh, the difference is he was without sin. And so he had a three-pound brain like the rest of us, but it was unclouded by sin. And so, when he would grow and develop, he would he would not be uh, he would not be distracted by sinful things, laziness, you know, selfishness, a lack of enthusiasm for the things of God. That didn't that wasn't a problem for him. And so he would he would grow in the most purest of senses. And we see that part of the way he grew was because of the faithfulness of his family. That that Mary and Joseph they weren't just coming to Jerusalem to go through the motions. They seem to genuinely love God and genuinely want to raise their children to know and love God as well. Really, they were doing what God had commanded his people to do uh, from back in the time of Moses. Uh, Moses, there was a time where he was speaking to the people of God, and he instructed them and also the parents within the community. Uh, Here's what he said in Deuteronomy 6. He said, "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might.'" And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That's what all parents should do. Those who love the Lord should teach their children to do the same. And we find the same sort of command in the New Testament. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, uh, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now today, we, we don't have to celebrate the feasts as they did then. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all, of all of those feasts. Feast of Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Booths. They had a whole rhythm in their year which would remind them of the things of God. We don't have those feasts because they've been fulfilled. But we do have a lot of opportunities uh, to honor the Lord. And, and to lead our children in that same way if we would take them. And so here, I think in this text, seeing the family of Jesus, it's a good opportunity for us to kind of take a look at our own family life. Whether we are married with kids, young marrieds, or singles, we all have a rhythm of our daily life, of our week and our year. And the question that I think we should ask is, you know, am I also making time for the things of God? Am I just going through the motions? There would have been some who came to Jerusalem thinking, ah, oh, it's Passover again, I guess I better go. Is it that kind of heart that we have? Or like, like Mary and Joseph, it says in our text in verse 43, they stayed the whole time. They didn't just come for the bare minimum two days. They stayed till the festival was over. And then they went back and they were rejoicing. Is that our attitude to the things of God? For example, is there a regular rhythm in your daily life of Bible reading? If you have kids... Do they ever enter a room and kind of catch you as you're praying, as you're reading the Bible? It's just kind of a natural thing that they see in the home. This is what mom and dad do, up early or late or whenever. Is that just kind of some of the things that you give your time and energy towards? Uh, As young marrieds, are are you setting aside some time to talk about what you're reading in the Bible? Are you reading it maybe together or just talking, you know, over dinner, hey, something I read in Psalms or just just voicing the things that God is doing in your own heart. As a single person, are you giving yourself to the worship of God? Is that something that's on your mind in your daily or weekly rhythm? Even when it comes to Sunday gatherings, this could be something that we do simply because it's what we do on Sunday mornings. We just kind of go through the motions. I remember talking to one friend of mine who had young kids, and we were talking a bit about this, and, uh, and he was saying, you know, when he was a, a child, he was, uh, grew up in a Christian home, but he said every now and again, his mom and dad would uh, skip uh, Sunday mornings for no apparent reason. They weren't out of town. They just, they just skipped, and they would go just have breakfast or do something. And he said he realized that actually those started to be the special Sundays. Like he would, as a child, be wondering, is this the week that we're going to get to skip church? And sort of unintentionally, his parents kind of flipped what was special in their family. What was special became that day when we didn't have to go and gather with God's people. And it's not something they did on purpose, but what we see here is that there are the rhythms that we establish in our life as individuals or as a family, they say a lot about what we think is important and a lot about where our heart is. And for Jesus, we see some of the effects in his life. In fact, our passage is bookended by these uh, uh, phrases that describe him in almost the exact same way. Uh, Luke 2.40, which is just before our passage, says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then Luke 2.52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And certainly, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus was a unique individual, but in part, part of the reason that he grew in this way was because he was part of a faithful family was because he had a mom and a dad that, that genuinely loved God and wanted to give their time and energy towards the things of, of God. They, they lived out of their biblical convictions. And so for us, if you're here and you're a believer, it's a good, I think, opportunity to consider what is it that I value in my life? And what is it that I'm giving my time towards? Do my kids, if I have them, see that in me? And I would suggest to you that it's never too late to start, even if your kids are older, I'd say, just call a family meeting and say, you know what? I- I'm feeling convicted about this. I think as a family, we should, I, I want to take some time at dinner. I would suggest to you, if you have young kids, we found dinner time to be not uh, a really productive time for any type of, you know, intelligent discussion amidst the battling to eat and not kill each other. So I would just say, it's good to have some time, but it doesn't have to be then. But, but are your kids seeing this in you? Do you see this in yourself? So, we see here in the life of Jesus a faithful family and the blessing that that is. That's the first thing. The second thing we see is that Jesus is a special son. Now, I know all kids are special. I know they're snowflakes and twinkling stars and all those things. Like, they're really, everyone's great. But Jesus, we have to admit, is especially special. I mean, his birth was foretold by an angel, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. As a toddler, he was prophesied over saying you will be a savior of the world. You would think for his parents that this, I mean, this must have been amazing. They must have just wondered sometimes at what they've heard spoken about their son. But if you think about it from Mary's point of view, I think there also would have been a lot of fear involved with raising a special son like this. I mean, she must have been wondering what what is it going to mean for my son to be the savior of the world? Is he going to? be able to have a family like every mother wants for their, their son? Is he going to be able to get married and have kids? What will he have to do to, to be this anointed savior? And some of the fears that probably were in Mary's heart, we see come to fruition in this text in a small way, but really a significant way because Jesus is, is lost for three days. And as a parent, you, you know the fear. You can imagine the fear, even if you don't have kids of losing your child for 20 minutes much less for three days. So we need to understand what's going on here. Uh, two questions in particular are, I think, I think, always come to mind when we read through this passage. Uh, practical questions. Number one, I mean, how could Mary and Joseph lose their kid for three days? We just said, our first point was that they were a faithful family. How faithful can you be if you lose your child for three days? Uh, so a couple of things here. Uh, the first is that, I mean, it's a different culture. For one thing, they're traveling in a big group, and typically at that in that day, the men and women would travel uh, sort of separately, and so it would have been very easy for Mary to assume that you know Jesus has Joseph has Jesus, or Joseph think that Mary has Jesus. We do this today, right? We lost uh, Thomas for I don't know a few hours yesterday. Uh, he was up with the neighbors. He was at Linnea and Dean's, and so they phoned us. It, it's all fine, but I'm just saying <laughs> that happens, right? That that even today this this can happen and. Uh, And the other thing to recognize, though, is Jesus is 12 years old, which in our day is still a kid, but back then it was almost an adult. And so the expectations in terms of his responsibility were very, very different. It's not like, I mean, I got lost as a child about this age at Disneyland. I remember vividly being lost, uh, not, you know, in the crowds. And so I just hunkered down in an arcade and watched people play video games. I mean, in in that situation, very clearly, it was an example of bad parenting on the part of my parents, right? But... (laughs) Here, here's different. So, just for us to keep that clear. Secondly, though, uh, second question Did Jesus, in this instant, did he do something wrong? Did, was it his fault? Did he, did he sin in some way against his parents? Which is a big question. I mean, the answer for most kids is obviously, but for Jesus, is that actually what happened? Because the Bible says very clearly he is without sin. And so, if that's the case, how do we explain his behavior? Well, I think the answer is very simply uh, what we said earlier, that Jesus actually was a 12-year-old boy. And 12-year-old boys, it's very possible, in fact, very probable, that they would do something unintentionally to cause trouble. In fact, this happens all the time. Uh, 12-year-old boys will go down to get something from the freezer and leave the door ajar so that everything defrosts in the freezer. And they didn't mean to. It just kind of happened. They didn't know. They had to go and push it so it was sealed. Twelve-year-old boys will go and invite new neighbors over to your house in the midst of spring cleaning. Come on over, my mom, she's in her pajamas. My mom'd be happy to to meet you. Come, no, it's great. Right? They're not trying to be difficult. They just they don't know. There's immaturity there, and and this is I think explains the behavior of Jesus, that he is he is so caught up in in the things that have filled his heart with joy, that as his father Joseph has explained things, he went to the temple with him. And prepared the sacrifice. And as he was there, he, his, his mind and his heart were just... They were so excited about the things of God. So excited about the things that he had been taught. And, and his growing understanding of who he is as the son of God. I mean, that's what he was doing the whole time. He didn't mean for this to be a difficult situation. But he was just caught up. Look at verses 46 and 48. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. He was there learning and teaching with with an ability that everyone was just astounded at. I mean, his parents were astonished, but I think they were also kind of ticked. I mean, if you look at Mary's question, she knows, like any good Jewish mother, how to ask a question that is heavy with guilty implications. (laughs) She says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She's saying, we were worried sick. We, we didn't know where you were. I mean, three days, just so you know, a day's journey away, a day's journey back, and then a day in the city looking for him. You can imagine the fear that gripped her heart. This is a nightmare for any parent. But, but I want you to see the, the pivot that happens in this text. Because it's fascinating. If you jump down to verse 51... Look at what it says as a summary about this event. It says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So you kind of have to wonder, why would she, what is it about this event that she would treasure? I mean, this seems like the kind of thing that you just don't ever want to think about. I mean, there are times like this in the life of parents when you, when you lose your kid at the mall, when they almost drown at the pool, when you're like, I don't, I don't want to think about that ever again. I was so scared yet something happens here that for Mary, it, it, it fills her heart with, with joy. She comes back to it again and again. And, and what we find here is, is really the climax of the scene. It's Jesus' response to his parents. In verse 49, he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now for us, those words sound very familiar. If you've read through the New Testament at all, or even just one of the Gospels, you, you'll know that Jesus always re- refers to God as my Father. That's, that's always the way he talks about God. Over 60 times, just in the Gospels, he says, my Father. He refers all the time to this sense of very personal connection. But you have to realize that at this point in time, no one had ever talked about God like that before. This, was, this would have been astounding. It, it, in a moment, we'll see that for them, they don't quite fully grasp it. The closest thing that we find in the Old Testament is this verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 63, 16, uh, speaking about God, it says, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, our Lord, um, O Lord, our, our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. And there you get the more general idea, kind of like the fatherland, that God is father to all, but that's not what's being said here. The word for father is the exact same word that Mary uses for Joseph. You're, you're personal, your dad. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. Which has which has monumental implications. Because what it means is that Jesus is not just the son of Mary, not just the adopted son of Joseph, he is the legitimate son of the God of the universe. And the thing about fathers and sons is that. One of the things about them is that they are always of the same kind. You know what I mean? Like elephant fathers have elephant sons. Always. Aardvark fathers, aardvark sons. Always. I try to f- come up with fun animals. Uh, all the animals. The, the father and the son, they're always of the same nature. And so God the father has God the son. Jesus is God just as God the Father is God. We see this uh, stated very clearly in the book of Hebrews, just so that there's no mistake, there's no lack of clarity. It says this, at the very beginning of Hebrews, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, that is Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, there's mystery here to be sure. I mean, we're talking about the Trinity. There there are a ton of things that are mysterious and we can't quite grasp. But there are other things that are crystal clear. And what's crystal clear here from even the, the earliest words of Jesus is that he is God, he is God the Son. And there's lots to be said about this, but for the sake of our time together, for the sake of the text, the one uh, point of truth that we want to see here is that because Jesus knows who he is as the son of God, he knows what his life should be about. Do you see that connection in the text? That he says there, he's sort of saying, where did you think I would be? I'm in my father's house. He recognizes himself as the son of God, and so he is in the house of God. Another translation for that, the literal words is, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? And so there's a very clear connection between the identity that Jesus understands of himself and then what his life will be about. And I'd say that's true for us as well. With certainty of identity comes clarity of purpose. He knows who he is, and so he knows what his life should be about. And this is, this is important for us. Not just that we would understand who Jesus is, but that we would have the opportunity to ask ourselves the same question. Who are we, exactly? Who are you? I don't just mean your ancestry or your vocation. I mean, those are important things. They're very helpful. I was listening to uh, an interview with uh, David Crosby. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, it's an old band. If you're young, you wouldn't know them, but he is a famous musician. And he said in the interview, uh, one of the things in talking about his, his life, he said, I've always been, I've always been uh, thankful that I've known who I was. He said, I, I've known I was a musician since a young age. And because of that, he, just, he played music his whole life. He never had to, to worry about what he was supposed to do. He, he brought joy to people, he, he played rock and roll his whole life, and he's still doing it. There is clarity that comes from knowing who you are. But there is a difference between having an earthly identity and an identity that goes beyond our time here on earth. Earthly identities are good for some things. But, but what, if, what if you don't find success as David Crosby did? What if there's something that you think you're born to do and yet it, it just never goes well and you're crushed? What if you do find success, but it almost destroys you? That's, that is the story of David Crosby. He had much success, and with that came much temptation, and he was uh, addicted to cocaine for a decade. He so said it almost killed him. Or what if you, you're able to live a fulfilled life here on earth, but that's all you have? You get to the end, and there's no hope beyond this life. See, human identity... Needs to be more durable, more long lasting than simply our ancestry or our vocation or our creative passions. And the Bible tells us that the very best answer to who we are is found in Jesus himself. That as Jesus is, is known to be the Son of God, we also can access that, that sonship, that connection with the family of God. And we see this in Romans where this this connection is spelled out. Romans 8 says uh, this, Romans 8, 14 to 17, speaking about those who believe, those who are following Jesus. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see the connection between the sonship of Jesus and the sonship of everyone who believes in Jesus. And if you're wondering, ladies, why it's sonship and not daughtership, well, the answer is that in that, in that culture, it was the son who received the inheritance from the father. And so what it's saying here is not a, an issue of gender distinction. It's simply saying that if you are a child of God, you receive all of the blessings of being in the family of God. And the interesting thing is that, that while Jesus has all of this in his own nature, we gain all of these things simply through our, our faith as a gift. That here in this moment, in the temple, as Jesus is filled with, with the Spirit and knowing who he is as the Son of God and knowing what his life should be about, we also can have that same sense of peace through acknowledging that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And we, we can then follow God as Jesus did. We can receive it by grace through faith. And so I ask again, who are you? If you find yourself uncertain in life, if you find yourself unsure of your purpose or anxious about the future, it's very likely that you don't have a a great answer to that question. But when you know Jesus as the son of God. And when you understand that, that you also, God wants to adopt you and welcome you into his family, from that comes a degree of stability and of, and of joy and of purpose. The same that we see here in the text from Jesus himself. For Jesus was a special son, but part of that specialness amazingly can be applied to our own life. And from that we can live a life like him, one of, one of purpose and joy. So that's the second thing. We see here a, a special son. The third thing though, we see is a submissive child. And I think this is one of the most fascinating things about this text. Because if you think about what Jesus has just acknowledged, he's, he's basically voiced that he is, he is the God of the universe. He has all wealth and power and privilege. And if, you were to, if I were to ask you, you know, what usually happens to a young person when they grow up knowing that they have immense wealth and power and privilege, I think most of the time you'd say that doesn't always go very well. It oftentimes leads to teenagers who are just entitled. 20-somethings who are waiting for their trust fund to come in. Lazy as anything. They have no character. Why? Because generally, character comes through adversity. And if you grow up knowing that you have a vast amount of cash waiting for you, that you have all the people in authority that can help you out when you get into trouble, if if you grow up knowing you have this kind of status, it oftentimes corrupts your soul. But notice what Jesus says right after this in verses 50 and 51. Firstly, uh, about Mary and Joseph, verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them He couldn't quite grasp, understandably, that Jesus is God the son. But then look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? That he is the son of God, and yet he went back and submitted to his mom and dad. He he obeyed them for the next 18 years until his ministry began. You have to think, why, why would he do that? One thing we know about teenagers is that they generally think that they know everything that they need to know, right? We've been teenagers. We knew that our parents knew nothing, and then they somehow learned some stuff by the time we got into our 20s or 30s. <laughs> teenagers are ones who, who are very quick to say, I got it, I got it figured out. I know, and, and they struggle with submissiveness, with obedience. Think of how much more difficult it would have been for Jesus, who actually did know much better than Mary and Joseph, I mean, it wouldn't have taken long for him to be wiser and smarter than his parents. And yet what we see here is that he submitted to them. Why did he do that? Well, because it was right. Because that was his role as a son. That to honor God, his role was to submit to the godly authority in his life. That that for all the time that he was in the household there, he sought to honor his mom and his dad. And this is a beautiful picture of what godly submission looks like. Because, to be honest, we all struggle with this. God has orchestrated the the universe in such a way that there are always people in authority above us. And the Bible is very clear that God has put those people in authority above us, even if they are not the most fantastic leaders. There's tons of examples in our lives where, where we where God has said, look, there is someone in authority above you, and you are to submit to them. Here's what it says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen: Obey your leaders. Speaking to, to Christians, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Notice the implication. That in good leadership, there is a great advantage to those who submit but there is never a a qualifier. Now now hear me, in terms of biblical submission, there is always an opportunity to to voice a second opinion. And there is always an opportunity, there should be, to to speak out against sin. But if we're honest, we say that that that's not really the greatest struggle. Sometimes it is. But there are many relationships of authority in our life where the biggest struggle is simply that we think we know better. Right? I mean, think of some of these relationships. Teenagers... They feel that they know better than their parents on many different issues. Employees are certain that they know better than some of their managers. Citizens, we think we know better than our political leaders. And sometimes we do. (laughs) There's even issues of authority in the home and in the church. Wives are called to respect and follow the lead of their husbands. And yet there are many times when I know that wives feel that they know better than their husbands. In the church, church members are called to follow the lead of their elders. And yet there are times when there's a struggle, they feel they know better. What are we called to do in these types of situations? Well, as I said, especially in the home, there needs to be mutual respect. There needs to be loving leadership. But also what we see is that submission really does mean submission. And that for all of us, there are areas in our life where we are going to be called to submit even when we think we know better. And what we see here in the life of Jesus is that he not only did this willingly, but that it was a blessing to him. That, that, that there's a reason that that final verse, verse 51 and 52, notice the, the connection there. Verse 51 said, And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's partly because of the way in which Jesus submitted that he grew and developed in every good way. There are good things that happen in our hearts and in our souls when we submit ourselves to the will of God. And very often God chooses to to shape us in that way through the people in our lives. It's one thing to say that we would gladly submit to God it's a more challenging thing to say that we would humble ourselves before a supervisor who is who is not the kindest individual in the land. And yet we see in scripture that in both these things we really are serving God. We really are exercising our obedience and our faithfulness and following in the way of Jesus. So my question is where are you struggling to submit? Can you think of areas in your life where, if you're honest, there's, your, your back has been up a bit? It's been difficult to actually follow the lead of the person who is in godly authority over you. And what might happen if you resolved to set aside your self-will in that situation and, and to, to commit yourself to honoring God through your, your joyful and peaceful submission? So we have to recognize that's how Jesus lived his life. That, that he submitted himself to the will of the father. And it was not an easier road. It's not an easier road to follow this way. But it's a better road. Just remember the words of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Knowing that the cross is before him. And yet he says this in Luke twenty-two forty-two: Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The attitude of submissiveness, what it does is it unleashes the blessing and purposes of God in our lives. Praise God that that was the attitude of Christ, that that he went to the cross at the will of the Father for the joy of fulfilling all of Scripture and for our salvation. But know that in your own lives, the same type of blessing will come. That as we trust God for those types of relationships, and we say, Lord, I'm, I don't see how this is best. I feel like I know better. And yet, the way forward in obedience is one of submission. It's in that place that we really experience the favor of God and that we will grow in every good way. And so we find here in our text, I think some maybe surprising points of instruction for us. We see the value of a faithful family. We see the uniqueness of the sonship of Christ And also the the calling for us, the the promise for us, that as we trust in him, that we will enjoy those same blessings, and we see in his sonship, in his divinity, still our Savior is one who submits to the godly authority in his life, and we're called to do the same. My hope for us as a church and as guests is that we see that we feel the weight of Scripture. And realize that that it's a weight, but it's a sweet weight. It's oftentimes a conviction that will spur us on to greater levels of godliness, greater closeness with Christ, and also greater opportunities to bless those around us. So let's pray and then respond to God for these these truths and these gifts. Lord God, we are thankful. Thankful, Lord, for this, uh, this window into the life of Christ. I pray, God, for us as a people... Lord, that you would would help us to examine our own lives. And Lord, to see where it is that you are looking to shape us, to mold us. Lord, where it is that we are to devote ourselves more fully to you in the life of our family. Lord, where it is that we are to better understand who we are as children of God. And Lord, where it is that we are called to submit. Lord, how it is that you want to honor yourself and glorify yourself through us, through our faithful submission. I pray, Lord, that you would give us strength for all these things. And Lord, that we would be uh, convinced that the road ahead, when it's one of obedience, is also one of joy and peace and hope. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.